So last week we did Hosea 5 through 7, all 35 verses. And we saw that Yahweh exposed Israel. He exposed their future judgment, their ideal repentance, and their corrupt heart. They had a fickle, blind, proud heart. And last week he focused a lot on the political corruption of Israel. This week, there's a strong emphasis on the religious failures of the nation of Israel. And that idea that there's a potential that they could avoid judgment, that's going to go away. And now the language for judgment is as strong as it has been in the entire book. Judgment is now a foregone conclusion. It's just assumed it's coming. So we're going to do chapter 8, all the way through chapter 9, verse 9. Let's start with chapter 8, verse 1. Put the trumpet to your lips. Like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord. He begins the passage in almost the same way he started last week. Last week in chapter 5, verse 8, he said, Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. The trumpet is the shofar. It was meant to warn people of impending danger. It was a call to arms. Get ready. War is coming. But here there's a little hint of sarcasm. You notice he doesn't say, blow the trumpet. He just says, put it to your lips. The idea is, you can put it to your lips, but you're not going to have time to blow the trumpet. The danger's already here. It's already at your door. The enemy is close. He says, they are the enemy which is coming against the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord here just refers to the northern kingdom of Israel. And the enemy is the nation of Assyria. And he describes Assyria as being an eagle. You can say either an eagle, a bird of prey, or it can also be translated as a vulture that's coming to eat up a dead carcass. Either way you take it, it's an image of judgment. Judgment has come. And Yahweh in verse 1 gives two reasons for the judgment. First, because they have transgressed my covenant, and second, they have rebelled against my law. And both of these center on their relationship with Yahweh. They turned away from the covenant, they violated his law, and these violations we've been seeing have been documented all the way through the book. And it is in that light of knowing what we've seen so far and all the times they've, they've transgressed his covenant, we get to verse 2 and we see them say something that's kind of shocking. Verse 2, they cry out to me, my God, we of Israel know you. This brings us to our first point on your handout. Israel's hypocrisy. Israel's hypocrisy, it's verses 1 through 7. Yahweh says, they cry out to me. The term here for crying refers to a cry of distress. But this isn't the cry of someone who actually wants the other person to come to them. This is the cry of someone who just wants something. It's the cry of someone who has a felt need. They don't want Yahweh, they just want what Yahweh can give them. Uh, Hosea 7, verse 14 he mentioned this last week, and they do not cry to me from their heart. 
When they wail on their beds for the sake of grain and new wine, they assemble themselves, they turn away from me. All they want is God to give them material blessing. Provide for us our grain and our new wine. And that's the only reason they're crying out to God. They are not crying out because they want to repent. They're not crying out because they want a relationship with him. They just want what God can give them. Notice in verse 2, the content of their cry. My God, we of Israel know you. They claim to have a real knowledge of Yahweh. To have a legitimate relationship with him. In Micah 3, this is an interesting cross-reference, Micah 3, 9 through 11, Micah gives some information that's similar to this. He says, now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, that's the northern and southern kingdoms, who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. It's not a pretty picture, is it? But notice, her priests instructs for a price and her prophets divine for money, yet they lean on the Lord saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. In the midst of rebelling against Yahweh, violating the covenant, transgressing the law, living in open rebellion against Him, they have the audacity to say, We belong to Yahweh. Kind of reminds me of Titus 1, verse 16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Just pure hypocrisy. And Yahweh is going to give more evidence that they are denying him through their lives. They might profess him with their lips, but they're denying him with their lives. Look at verse 3. Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. They rejected. You might say they spurned. The word here says they is the idea of strongly dislike. They had a vehement disapproval for that which is good. That which is good refers to Yahweh himself, the epitome of what is good. They didn't have a love for him. They despised him, and their lives proved it. They didn't want to know him. They didn't want to love him. They didn't even want him around. And therefore, into the verse, the enemy will pursue them, or pursue him, speaking of the northern kingdom. It's an interesting word he used, the word here, for pursue isn't merely just chase. It's to chase someone with the intention of bringing war or revenge upon them. You might say they were persecuting. Uh, Deuteronomy 30 verse 7 translates this, those who persecuted you. The enemy is going to chase them with the ultimate goal of catching and destroying them. How else is their profession Evidence of hypocrisy. Look at verse 4. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have appointed princes, but I did not know it. Anybody remember back into our very first week, an example of them setting up a king and installing their own king? Saul? Okay. I'm sorry? Saul was appointed, 
an example we talked about in the first class of them setting up a king that God did not choose. Oh, this is a real test. Several weeks back. Back in 1 Kings chapter 12, this is at the split of the northern and the southern kingdoms. Remember, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, had just taken over, and his young advisors come to him and say, you need to increase the burden on the northern tribes. And Jeroboam, representing the northern tribes, says, no, 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 you need to lighten our burden. We don't like what you guys are doing to us. And when Rehoboam said, I'm not going to lighten the burden, I'm going to increase your burden, the northern tribes said, we're done with you guys. 1 Kings 12, verse 16, when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king saying, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now look after your own house, David. So Israel departed to their tents. The northern kingdom rejected the king that God had established over them. And in rejecting that king, they were rejecting Yahweh himself. They didn't just reject Rehoboam. They rejected the entire lineage of David. And instead, they set up their own king, uh, 1 Kings 12, verse 20. It came about when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, that they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. None but the tribe of Judah followed the house of David. They installed their own king, and they said, we don't care what Yahweh thinks about it. We don't care if he likes this guy. He is going to be our king. You can also look at 2 Kings 15, 10 through 30. 2 Kings 10, uh, excuse me, 2 Kings 15, 10 through 30. It gives the history of those kings that were assassinated and one after the other. Uh, kings Shalem, Menahem, and Pekahiah. The northern kingdom didn't care what God said about who was to be their ruler. They appointed their own kings. And in rejecting the kings that God gave them, they rejected Yahweh. How else, how else is their profession hypocritical? Back to verse 4 again. With their silver and gold they made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. Yahweh gives them silver, he gives them gold, he gives them things to bless them with. And the people who profess to know this one true God turn around, take that silver and gold, turn it into an idol, and then bow down and worship the gold. And he says, for that they will be cut off. I think that's pretty obvious what he's referring to there. The term there could be translated exterminate. It's just judgments coming. Verse 5, he gives his response to their idolatry. He has rejected your calf, O Samaria, saying, My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? All right, what calf is he talking about? I'm sorry? The one that Jeroboam set up. Remember Jeroboam the first? There was two main routes that get you down to Jerusalem. And there was a town called Dan and a town called Bethel, and he set up temples and he put golden calves in both of them, and he said, this is your God, O Israel. And he encouraged them to bow down and to worship the golden calf. That's in 1 Kings 12, 29. 
This idolatry is crystal clear evidence that they don't know Yahweh. Isaiah 45, verse 20. Isaiah 45, 20. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. You want to prove you don't know Yahweh? Worship something other than Yahweh, like a statue that you just made. And then in the middle of verse 5, he says, My anger burns against them. I don't think I need to explain that. I think it's pretty obvious. The final phrase of verse 5, How long will they be incapable of innocence? The question just leads you to a conclusion. They can't be pleasing to Yahweh. They cannot obey the law. They can't fulfill the requirements of the law. Here's something we should all know. Neither can we. That's why Christ came to fulfill the law. Because just like Israel, we can't obey it either. And this was shocking. This idolatry was to be expected from Gentile nations. It was expected of pagan nations. But verse 6, For from Israel is even this. It's one thing for a pagan nation who knows nothing of Yahweh, who's never seen Yahweh work. It's one thing for them to bow down to an idol. We kind of get that. But it's a completely different thing for the nation of Israel to bow down and worship an idol. This was the nation that had been delivered from Egypt by signs and wonders. This was the nation that had been given the promised land and God defeated all of their enemies in front of them. They had been given the oracles of God. For them to do this was unthinkable. And then to do this and turn around and say, we know Yahweh? They should have known better. They knew better. This wasn't ignorance. It was rebellion. Verse 6 again, he's speaking of the idol. A craftsman made it, so it is not God. They cut down a tree, carve it, shape it into something, and then turn around and claim that the tree that they just cut down is God. Jeremiah 10, 14 and 15. Every man is stupid, devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. For his molten images are deceitful, and there is no breath of them. They are worthless, a work of mockery. In the time of their punishment, they will perish. They're making golden idols, worshiping stone and wood, and yet they have the audacity to say, we know Yahweh. Final phrase of verse 6. Surely the calf of Samaria will be broken to pieces. Again, there's not much explanation here. But they had mimicked the nation of Israel at Sinai. They built a golden calf. They even said the same thing about the golden calf. This is your God, O Israel. And now God, in kind of an ironic twist, turns around and said, this calf is going to meet the same fate. It's going to be shattered into pieces. You can't sit there and live a hypocritical life 
claim to know Yahweh, claim to be one of his, claim to know Christ, and then live a life of sheer sin and rebellion and expect you're going to get away with it. Because that's what they were doing. Galatians 6, 7 and 8, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from his flesh corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. That's a New Testament principle. You reap, you gather what you sow. And it's the same idea that he's going to present here in verse 7. Look at verse 7. For they sow the wind, and they reap the whirlwind. Now you know where I got the title. Shamelessly stolen. If you sow a little bit of unrighteousness in your life, expect to reap a large harvest of judgment. If you sow a little wind, expect to receive a whirlwind. You might translate that differently, a tornado of destruction and judgment. And this destruction, this judgment, is going to begin with their food supply. Verse 7 again, The standing grain has no heads. It yields no grain. Should it yield, strangers would swallow it up. Standing grain just talks about the grain that's actually still planted in the ground. There's a plant there, but there's no head. There's no seed in it. There's no actual grain. It's like a fig tree with no figs. Jeremiah 12, 13, he gives the same idea. They have sown wheat and have reaped thorns. You've been sacrificing these fertility gods and trying to appease Baal, thinking that he's going to give you grain and new wine. But you're going to go out to get your harvest, and there's going to be nothing there. Into verse 7, he says that what does come out, what grain is produced from it, somebody else will come and take. The nation of Assyria will come and take it away from you. Israel couldn't be a hypocrite forever. Judgment was coming. The mask would be taken off. Their hypocrisy would be revealed. By the way, I don't think I told you this. The title here is Reaping the Whirlwind. The six points on your outline explain how or why they're going to reap the whirlwind. How or why they're going to reap the whirlwind. I should have told you that at the beginning. So this first one is one of the reasons why. Because of their hypocrisy. Second point on your outline. Israel diminished. He starts verse 8. Israel is swallowed up. This is likely a play on words. In verse 7, he said that their grain would be swallowed up by another nation. And now he pictures Israel as being swallowed up. There's a couple of different ways you can interpret that. Some say, some say it refers to their grain being swallowed up by sacrificing to false gods. Um, I think the remainder of the verse would suggest that this is talking about the nation going into judgment. Verse 8, again, they are now among the nations like a vessel in which no one delights. The term Israel swallowed up refers to the northern kingdom being destroyed. 
its residents are killed and those who are not killed are absorbed, taken into Assyria and to other nations. So in that sense, the nation is swallowed up. Jeremiah 50, verse 17, Israel is a scattered flock. The lions have driven them away. The first one who devoured him was the king of Assyria. And this last one who has broken his bones is Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. There's the idea. They're swallowed up. They're devoured by another nation. But notice, Hosea is writing to and he's living in the northern kingdom when he writes this. And yet he speaks about it as almost like it's already happened. Israel is swallowed up. They are now among the nations. But he's in Israel. Judgment hasn't come when he's writing this. He was writing about a future event in the present tense. This judgment is so certain, I can speak of it as though it's already happened. That little open door that you might repent later is kicked closed. You're not going to repent. You're not going to turn back. This judgment will happen. Your end is as good as gone. Do you hear how he's kind of elevated the tone? Judgment was always a potential in their future up until this point. And now it's a certainty. Into verse 8 again, they are now among the nations like a vessel in which no one delights. All of their political maneuvering, all of their tributes paid to other kings, all of their efforts to build diplomacy and gain the favor of other nations, fail. The other nations see them as a vessel in which no one delights. They're viewed as worthless terrible. No one likes them. No one wants to be around them. The king of Assyria only keeps them around because they're paying them. The other nations have no respect for them. Verse 9, for they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey. All alone, Ephraim has hired lovers. Israel went up to Assyria and they paid off the king of Assyria. Why'd they pay him off? Anybody remember? Anyone hazard a guess? Why would you pay off another king? Yeah. So he doesn't attack. The king of Assyria was going around and he had two ways of operating with other nations. I'll destroy you or you can pay me. And so they said, well, it's better not to fight with him because we'll lose, so we'll just pay him. They paid him. Assyria gladly took their money, and Assyria hated them anyway. He says they went up like a wild donkey. This must have been a serious insult to them. They're the descendants of Israel, or excuse me, the descendants of Isaac. This term, a wild donkey, was applied to Ishmael, the other son of Abraham, who was not the son of promise. Genesis 16:12, he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live to the east of all of his brothers. 
That's a picture of the northern kingdom. Everybody hates them. Everybody will be against them. The only reason they had any kind of positive relationship with the other nations is because they were paying them. In the verse 9, he describes it in one little phrase, Ephraim has hired lovers. Instead of doing what they should have done, instead of turning back and trusting Yahweh and calling upon Yahweh, saying, hey, a serious threat, and come and wipe us out, would you save us? Instead of doing that, they turned to political alliances and tried to resolve the problem on their own. And they ended up just paying and paying and paying. And the reason they failed at this wasn't because they weren't good at diplomacy. They failed at this because Assyria was God's judgment on them. It was intended to get them to repent. But they didn't listen. Verse 10, even though they hire allies among the nations. This is better translated, even when they hire allies among the nations. They are, and they will continue to hire other nations. They will continue to pay off these nations. Verse 10 again, now I will gather them up. Usually when he says, I'm going to gather you, it's a picture of reconciliation. You're going to go into another land, I'm going to gather you together, and I'm going to restore you. Here he's going to gather them, he's going to assemble them for the purpose of judgment. To judge them. Verse 10, and they will begin to diminish because of the burden of the king of princes. King of princes is likely a reference to the king of Assyria. And because of him, the nation of Israel will begin to diminish. The king of Assyria is the means by which God is going to make the nation diminish. They will begin to be few. They'll shrink. This is true in a couple of ways. One, Their grain harvest, as we've already seen, their grain harvest is going to diminish. They're not going to have grain and new wine. But here it's specifically attributed to the king of princes. Remember, the king of Assyria was taking tributes. And he wasn't very compassionate about how much he took. And you might say he was sucking them dry. He was taking as much as he could, depriving Israel of their wealth, And after paying them all that money, when they couldn't pay them anymore, or when they didn't want to pay them anymore, he invaded them anyway. The diminishing of Israel was a judgment of Yahweh on the nation. It was a judgment for their hypocrisy, for their rebellion. It was also a judgment for the third point on your handout. Israel's forgetfulness. I'm moving a lot faster than I thought I would. Before we go any further, questions, comments? Yes, sir. I I was wondering if anyone was going to draw that parallel because I, I made the same, the same observation. He said... Um, this is exactly what the U.S. is doing. It's kind of hard not to see your own country in it. Any other comments? 
Questions? All right. Well, we'll keep on going. Yes. Yeah. They spent a lot of time and a lot of effort chasing after something that wasn't going to work, that was only going to fail. All right. Where am I? Israel's forgetfulness. Look at verse 11. Since Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin... Israel multiplied their altars. They made a whole bunch of altars for one purpose, for the purpose of committing sin. They made them to worship false gods. They made them to worship the god of Baal. Uh, Hosea chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, or chapter 1, verse 1, sorry. Hosea 10, verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. The more God blessed them with gold and silver and wealth, the more they used that to build altars and false gods and turn away from him. And God promises to destroy these altars. Into verse 11, they have become altars of sinning for him. The purpose of building them was so they can commit sin. And the final statement there says that they achieve their goal. They built them and they used them for exactly what they built them for. They used them for sinning. Sacrificing to gods that did not exist. Verse 12. Though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law. This is Yahweh speaking. They're doing this in light of all of the revelation God has given them. In light of the the relationship they've experienced with Yahweh. Despite all of that. They had no regard for anything God had written to them up until that point. This is very different from what other writers of scripture say about scripture about what God has written to them. Can you think of any passages in Scripture that people talk about how they view the Word of God? How they view Scripture? I heard you say something. David in the Psalms? Uh, Psalm 119? Compare Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Psalm 119, 97 and 98. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. It's not what the nation of Israel was saying. Or Moses, speaking of the united nation of Israel, Deuteronomy 4. Verse 7, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? 
for them to turn away from his statutes, for them to turn away from his law, to ignore all that God had given them, was just unthinkable. And the statement here, he makes it, it's almost like God is, you can almost hear him hurting from it. Even though I've done all this for you, you still turn away from me. He says they are a stranger to it. The law is a stranger. It's it's a strange thing. It's a stranger to them. They know nothing about it. They have no association with it. Verse 13. As for my sacrificial gifts. Sacrificial gifts here is literally my sacrifices of meat. And it refers to the burnt offerings, the lambs, the bulls that they would sacrifice to God. Those were his sacrificial gifts. These sacrifices were the symbols of God reconciling himself to the nation and dealing with their sin. It was the symbol of God establishing a relationship with them. Yet Israel didn't view these sacrifices as a way of having a relationship with Yahweh. For them, these sacrifices didn't do anything for their relationship with Yahweh. These sacrifices were just a way to satisfy their own desires. First, they used them as a way just to continue in sin. Well, I'm going to go and commit the sin, then all I have to do is go and do the sacrifice, and my sin's taken care of. So I can keep on in my sin. It was just religion. There was no love for Yahweh. Jeremiah 7, he says, For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and you will walk in the way which I command you, that it may be well with you. The whole point of these sacrifices was for them to have a relationship with Yahweh. They just used them so they can send some more. Yes. Good question. She was asking, as far as the people are concerned, what was their level of knowledge? Did they know this? Um, off the top of my head, I don't remember what part this was, but we've looked at this. Um, chapter 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. The religious leaders of Israel... Um, weren't teaching the people. They weren't instructing them. They weren't guiding them. And in fact, they were actually using their positions to enrich and to empower themselves. And then they were encouraging people to sin. In chapter 4, we saw they they encouraged the sin because as the people sinned, they would bring more sacrifices in and the priests got to eat better. Um, 
God then turns around and looks at the people and says, but that's no excuse for you to do what you're doing. And he says, the reason you're doing what you're doing is because you've rejected knowledge. You've turned away from me. You don't want me. And so, in one sense, yes, the priests were trying not to teach them. And in another sense, no, the people weren't completely ignorant and they knew what they were doing was wrong. Does that answer the question? Good question. He mentioned James 3, teachers are held to a higher standard. And then Romans 1, uh, there is no true atheist in the world. You, you reject God because you're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Verse 13 again, they sacrifice the flesh and eat it, but the Lord has taken no delight in them. This should remind you of uh, Hosea 4, 8, and 9. We just kind of mentioned this, so good segue. Um the priests were encouraging people to sin and they were doing that so the people would bring in more sacrifices. And as the people brought in more sacrifices, the priests got to eat part of those sacrifices. So this was a way to enrich themselves. It was the ancient version of the prosperity gospel. But in Hosea 4, he was addressing the priests. But when they sacrificed to Baal, when the people would sacrifice to Baal, not only the priests got to eat part of the sacrifice, but the people apparently got to eat part of the sacrifice. And here, that's what it's picturing. They make sacrifices, and they go through these rituals just so they can go out and have a picnic. Just so they can go out and have a meal. It's not to actually bring them closer to Yahweh. And Hosea says, but the Lord has taken no delight in them. No delight in the sacrifices. The statement's actually a little bit more emphatic. He says, Yahweh has never taken delight in them. The sacrifice wasn't the point. If all they got out of the book of Leviticus was appease God with sacrifices, they missed the point. He wanted them to love him and to care for him. And to return that love and obedience. But instead they just used those sacrifices for their own purposes. Into verse 13. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. They will return to Egypt. It's not exactly what you're used to hearing from Yahweh. You're used to hearing Yahweh say, I will not remember your sins anymore. And here he says, I will remember your iniquity, and I will punish you for your sin. At some point, the grace and the mercy run out. Every sin would be accounted for, every transgression would be repaid, every violation of his law would be recompensed. And he summarizes this with that one statement they will return to Egypt. I don't think this is a promise of a physical return to Egypt. It's a metaphoric statement. They were at one time enslaved and in bondage in Egypt, in a foreign nation, in a foreign land, under the rule of a godless king. And Yahweh says, you're about to go through that again. You're going back to a metaphorical Egypt. And you're going to dwell and live under the rule of a pagan king. Why is this going to happen? 
Why are they going to experience this? Verse 14, For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. But I will send a fire on its cities that it may consume its palatial dwellings. It's a summary statement. The summary of their apostasy and turning away from Yahweh. This whole section has been about them forgetting him, intentionally leaving Yahweh behind. They live as though Yahweh doesn't exist. They build altars for a God that does not exist. They sacrifice to that God, and they eat those sacrifices for their own pleasure. He says they build palaces. Palaces here refers to temples. These are new places of worship. Yahweh had established the one temple in Jerusalem. They said, forget about all that. We're going to build our own palaces. We're going to build our own temples, and we're going to worship there. Judah has multiplied fortified cities. This is talking about the southern kingdom who would experience judgment later. But they too had forgotten Yahweh. Instead of looking to Yahweh to be their defender, they started building fortified cities and building up their military might, depending upon themselves. They forgot about the promises of God when God said, The Lord shall cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way, and they will flee before you seven ways. That's Deuteronomy 28.7. They forgot about that. Completely ignored it. And instead they looked to themselves for their alliances, for their military. But Yahweh's not sitting in heaven wringing his hands, wondering what he's going to do about it. He knows what he's going to do about it. Verse 14 again, But I will send a fire on its cities, that it may consume its palatial dwellings. Now this promise of fire coming upon a city was usually a promise made to pagan nations. Um, Amos says this several times. If you go to over to Amos chapter 1, Amos says this several times about multiple nations. Amos 1, starting in verse 7, he says, So I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza, and will consume her citadels. Verse 10, So I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it will consume her citadels. Verse 14, So I will kindle a fire on the wall of Rabbah, and will consume her citadels amid war cries on the day of battle, and a storm on the day of the tempest. Amos 2.2 and Amos 2.5, same idea. (laughs) Yahweh promises to treat His people exactly as they have been behaving. You want to behave like a pagan nation? I'll give you what I give pagan nations. I'll treat you like a pagan nation. Why? Because of their forgetfulness. They forgot Yahweh. They left Him. This brings us to our fourth point. Israel's humiliation. Starting in chapter 9. Do not rejoice, O Israel, with exaltation like the nations. For you have played the harlot. Forsaking your God, you have loved harlot's earnings on every threshing floor. Does the language here sound familiar? Referring to them as a harlot? 
Sound familiar? Yes. I'm trying to get you guys to wake up a little. Come on. Um, yeah, this is the kind of language he used in the first three chapters. This is the language he used when he was talking about Hosea and Gomer. And he tells them, do not rejoice, O Israel. Do not exalt like the nations. This was not a time for you guys to be participating in the appointed feasts. You guys abused those feasts. Hosea 2.11, he says, I'm going to put an end to your gaiety. I'm going to put an end to your fanfare and all your celebration. Given her sinful condition, given the fact that she had turned from Yahweh, for them to rejoice was just unbecoming. She had played the harlot. She had worshipped false gods. She was enjoying the benefits of worshipping Baal. And Hosea says, they have loved the pay of a prostitute. She has no reason to rejoice. She has no cause to shout with exaltation. That's what pagans do in their sin. The only appropriate response of Yahweh's people to sin is brokenness, a contrite heart, humility, sorrow and mourning. They should be humbled over their sin. They should be humiliated by their sin. And they're not. So God's going to help them. And he's going to bring humiliation. First, everything that Israel believed Baal was going to give them, Yahweh is, is going to render as useless. Chapter 9, verse 2. Threshing floor and wine press will not feed them, and the new wine will fail them. Threshing floor refers to their grain harvest. The wine press refers to the production of wine. All the things that they want, all the means of getting what they want, all of them are going to fail. It's not going to work. It's not going to be sufficient. That deception that Baal can provide for all of their needs that's going to be removed. They're not going to be able to believe that anymore. And they're going to be humiliated in realizing that their false worship is actually false worship. It's false religion. It's fake. Verse 3, They will not remain in the Lord's land, but Ephraim will return to Egypt, and in Assyria they will eat unclean food. The land that was promised to their fathers, the land which they inherited as God's chosen people, they're going to be kicked out of it. They're going to be forced to move. Forcibly removed and then enslaved. And again, he uses a metaphor of going back to Egypt in the third line. And in Assyria, they will eat unclean food. We know this is a metaphor when he says they're going back to Egypt. We know it's a metaphor because Hosea 11, verse 5, it says, They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king because they refuse to return to me. They're going to be removed from their land. They will dwell in an unclean land, and there they will die. 
They live like Gentiles in Israel, and now he's going to put them where they belong, among the Gentiles, to live and to worship like the pagan nations. And while they're there, they will have no access to Yahweh. They will have no access to his grace or his mercy. Verse 4, they will not pour out drink offerings of wine to the Lord. Their sacrifices will not please him. Their bread will be like mourner's bread. All who eat of it will be defiled, for their bread will be, will be for themselves alone. It will not enter the house of the Lord. They can pour out a drink offering. They can make a sacrifice. It's not going to do any good. They can bring a grain offering. They can eat their sacrifices, and it's just going to be for them. It's not going to get any kind of favor or mercy from Yahweh. It's not going to enter into his presence whatsoever. The time of mercy is over. It's going to be only for their benefit they still won't have a heart for repentance. There still will be no desire for them to repent. And he summarizes the futility of their sacrifices in exile. Verse 5, What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? The day of the feast of the Lord likely refers to the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, Jeroboam, the guy who set up the, the calves, also changed the appointed feast. Um, Leviticus 23-34, Deuteronomy 16-15 gives the Feast of Tabernacles. And it gives the days and the month that it's supposed to happen. You go to 1 Kings 12-32, and he changes the day and the month of the feast. And he changes the location of where that feast is to be celebrated. And now God is going to destroy those feasts, those temples. They're not going to be able to practice them anymore. The one means they thought they had for gaining Yahweh's favor, for having a relationship with Him, is going to be gone. They're going to be completely separated with no way to get back into His good graces. Verse 6, for behold, they will go because of destruction. Egypt will gather them up. Memphis will bury them. Weeds will take over their treasures of silver. Thorns will be in their tents. Again, I understand this as being metaphoric. Memphis is a city in Egypt, but I think both of those are metaphors. Again, Hosea 11.5 says they're not going back to Egypt. The metaphor here is, again, they will be taken away into bondage. Assyria is going to come in, they're going to destroy the nation, and they're going to carry off the few that do not die, they're going to carry them off into the land of Assyria, and those people will die in Assyria. And what happens to their homeland? What happens to all of their homes and their treasures and all the things that they loved back in Israel? Well, it's going to be taken over by thorns. The nation is going to be overgrown, populated by weeds. Israel is going to be utterly humiliated. Their false religion exposed and destroyed. 
They'll be enslaved again. They'll be forced to eat food that they, see, they deem as unclean. They'll be cut off from Yahweh. But he's not done with his explanation of why they're going to have, they're going to reap a whirlwind. This is the last point. Why are they going to reap the whirlwind? Israel's depravity. Israel's depravity, 7 through 9. Look at verse 7. He says, The days of punishment have come. The days of retribution have come. Let Israel know this. The prophet is a fool. The inspired man is demented. Because of the grossness of your iniquity and because your hostility is so great. Just when you thought Israel couldn't be any more corrupt. Just when you thought you've heard it all. Here comes chapter 9, 7 through 9. Their utter depravity is on full display. And they demonstrate their absolute hatred for God in how they treat the prophets. Notice he says the days of punishment have come, the days of retribution. Why? Because Israel's refusing to listen to prophets like Hosea. Verse 7 tells what they said about the prophets of Yahweh. They said the prophet is a fool. That Hosea guy, you don't need to listen to him. Amos, Micah, the rest of them, you don't need to listen to any of them. He's an idiot. Don't even waste your time. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Or the phrase, the inspired man is demented. He's a lunatic. He's crazy. He's mad. Why are they going to say this? Verse 7 again, because of the grossness of your iniquity. You shoot the messenger because you hate the message. The prophets were coming and condemning them, exposing their sin, telling them about the coming judgment. And that message brought a lot of hate. And they did not like the prophets for it. Verse 8, Ephraim was a watchman with my God, a prophet. The translation here is a little confusing. I think it would be better stated, the watchman of Ephraim is the prophet with my God. Ephraim was not the watchman. The prophet was the watchman for Ephraim. The prophet was the one who was sent to watch over Ephraim and to warn them of danger. Yes, the watchman of Ephraim is the prophet with my God. And I believe when I looked at the other translations, most of the other translations take that as being the prophet is the watchman, not Ephraim. But, yeah. The prophets are telling a sinful nation that they are incurring the wrath of Yahweh. And that can be a really dangerous job. Verse 8, yet the snare of a bird catcher is in all of his ways, and there is only hostility in the house of God. The snare of the bird catcher describes people entrapping the prophets and trying to um, cause them problem. Jeremiah 37, starting in verse 12, describes someone trying to falsely accuse the prophet Jeremiah, and they actually arrest him and beat him. 
because of what he was saying. And there's no place where the prophet can go where he doesn't meet this. He can even go to the temple in Jerusalem. Notice the verse, and there is hostility in the house of his God. Even in the temple, he finds hostility. There's hatred towards him. So just how depraved are these people? How bad did it get? How far did they sink? Verse 9. They have gone deep in depravity as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Can you guys turn over to Judges 19? We're going to end in Judges 19. While you're turning there, he says they have gone deep into depravity. They have sunk to new depths. Really low. And God is going to bring judgment upon them because of their depravity. And he makes a reference to Gibeah. Anybody remember what Gibeah is? We've, I've mentioned it before, but I haven't talked about it. I told you in the first class, Hosea knows his Bible. What is Gibeah? Gibeah is discussed in Judges 19. And for context, it's talking about a Levitical priest who was traveling. And he was traveling with his concubine. And he had a choice. I can go stay in Gibeah, which is the people of God, or I can go stay over here with some pagans. And he assumed that staying in Gibeah with you know, the people of Yahweh would be a better idea for him. And I'm just going to read these verses without comment, starting in verse 22. And then I just want to hear from you. Verse 22. While they were celebrating, behold, the men of the city, certain worthless fellows, surrounded the house, pounding the door. And they spoke to the owner of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man, the Levitical priest, who came in your house, that we may have relations with him. Then the man, the owner of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my fellows, please do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not commit this act of folly. Here is my virgin daughter and his concubine, the concubine of the Levitical priest. Please let me bring them out that you may ravish them and do to them whatever you wish. But do not commit such an act of folly against this man. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and brought her out to them. And they raped her and abused her all night until morning. Then they let her go at the approach of dawn. As the day began to dawn, the woman came and fell down at the doorway of the man's house where her master was until full daylight. When her master arose in the morning and opened the door of the house and went out to go on his way, then behold, his concubine was lying at the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up. Let us go. But there was no answer. Then he placed her on the donkey, and the man arose and went to his home. When he entered his home, he took his knife and laid hold of his concubine and cut her in twelve pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. All who saw it said, Nothing like this has ever happened or been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up from the land of Egypt to this day. Consider it. Take counsel and speak up. 
Does that remind you of another passage of Scripture? Story of Lot. When Hosea calls Israel and says they have sunk to the depths of Gibeah, he's saying Israel has become the new Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah had fire rain from the sky. Judges 20 says that like Sodom and Gomorrah, Israel did not repent. They didn't turn from their sin. And now Israel is going to meet the same fate. They're going to be destroyed by fire. The only difference here is the fire is going to come from the nation of Assyria rather than from the sky. That was a very uplifting class, was it not? All right. If you have any questions, I'm one minute over. So if you have any questions, please feel free to come and ask me. And um, let's close in prayer real quick. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you so much that you um, have revealed yourself as being a holy and just God. And while passages like these are not always the funnest thing to hear, uh, we do need the reminder that you are holy and that sinful man is corrupt and that you do judge sin. And while Israel did not see your mercy then, we know that in Christ we can receive your mercy and that you have maintained a remnant even from them. And so we thank you so much for that mercy. We thank you so much for that grace in Christ. And we ask that you would help us to worship you this morning. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.